this is the big problem for me. This is the major issue. How do I find customers? How do I find people that are really interested in buying books? For many of us, as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds, flying through the universe at the speed of light, watching immortal enemies battling to the death. And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics. From the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork, to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colomb. Under the Mask Podcast, Episode 12. Hey, do you remember those old crazy cartoons from the 1980s? What if you wanted to make your own with modern sensibilities in mind? My guest today did exactly that, and coming up, we'll hear about why and how. My guest today is an accomplished writer and creator whose latest work, Neotheric, can be described as an R-rated 80s cartoon. You can find his books on Amazon, Comixology, or check out his website, www.rainyroadmedia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael T. Gonzalez. Michael, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. I really appreciate it. This is actually one of the first interviews that I've done that I haven't met the creator before. I've, actually, this is my first time talking with you right before the podcast here. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to be here. Like the, your, the intro to your podcast says, and like all of the, a lot of the people that you've interviewed so far, I have a very similar story. Just grew up reading comic books and really loved reading comics. I really, really loved reading in general, but not only just reading the books, I had this crazy idea that, you know, maybe I could actually write them. So I had, you know, little stories, ideas that would pop into my head. And so I thought, well, yeah, let me see if I can start writing. So I actually would start writing stuff when I was pretty young. I think I submitted, I think it was back in like 1984 that Marvel had the Marvel tryout book. For writers, the only thing you can do was basically send them what they called springboards. And it was just like a couple lines to tell the plot of the story and then one page to describe it. And I sent that in. Um, I'm pretty sure I was like 11 years old. And I actually got a rejection letter signed by Stan Lee. And it was, you know, not an actual signature, but you know, like the photocopy. So I thought that was really cool. So I started really young. I really liked to, I wanted to write, tell stories. I had ideas in my head and I wanted to tell them to other people, you know? And so from a very young age, I just practiced writing. I had a, found an old typewriter in the closet and would write and all the way up until I think after I graduated high school. And, you know, I would send in submissions to Dark Horse. At the time, Dark Horse would accept submissions. So I sent a bunch of different submissions to Dark Horse. But everything 
I mean, nothing really worked out. You know, everything was rejected. I never went anywhere with it. So I kind of gave up. I gave up comic books totally. I stopped reading them. I stopped, you know, trying to get into the business and all that kind of stuff. And I focused more on trying to get into film and video. And I did that for, I don't know, the, the next like 10, 15, 20 years. And then I was in China. I was actually living in China for back in from 2008 until 2015. And when I was there, I had heard about, you know, this whole digital revolution where people now you got comiXology and, and everything, the internet, it's so much easier to connect with other people and collaborate with people all over the world. So, you know, you could find an artist in Colombia and then you could do something. You never have to meet each other. You know, you wouldn't have to like fly there or anything. You just do everything online. You could put it all together and then you put it up on a website like Comixology and there you got a comic book. You know, that was something that was never an option way back, you know, like in the 80s and 90s and all that kind of stuff. So when I was in China, I just just sat down. I was like, okay, let me see if I can get back into it and try it again one more time to write something. So I just started writing down ideas. And one of the ideas was this book, uh, Neotheric. And so found an artist and we just worked through it. And, you know, I did everything by the seat of my pants, learning how to write a comic book, how to letter, how to put the book together, how the format should be, all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, watching YouTube tutorials and things like that, trying to figure it all out. And so that's where we are today. You know, one of the great things about uh, living now Almost everything can be found on the internet. If you want to learn something, there is so much knowledge out there. And it's just awesome that if you want to take the initiative, you can learn to do all of it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, but it took a really long time. Like I lettered the first issue of Neotheric and that was back, I think is like the end of 2015 after I'd gotten all the art and I had no idea what I was doing. So I was using this program to try to to do the lettering and I didn't know anything about how to do the lettering. And so I just, just trying to learn it and just go, like I said, going on YouTube, finding tutorials of how to do it. And, but I still didn't know exactly like how big the font should be and what kind of font I should have, all these kinds of things. So it was a real like trial by error process of just learning and it took a really long time. And so when I went back and I prepared all the pages for the printed book now, I redid the entire first issue. I relettered the entire first issue because I had learned so much in just the few years since I had first started until now when the book was ready to be printed. So, I mean, there's, yeah, like you're saying, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, everything is, everything is available on the internet. Any information you need, you just have to click of a button and you can kind of find it. And you may have to work through it a little bit, but it's there. Well, go ahead and tell us about uh, Neotheric. What the book is about, it's like this over-the-top sci-fi, very um, brutal like satire, but it's primarily like an action-adventure sci-fi about these dinosaurs, anthropomorphic dinosaurs, who return to modern-day Earth because they were used as slaves by aliens. They're like, they're used, these aliens, you know, take them around to different uh, plants all over the solar system and use the dinosaurs as like these beasts of burden to convert the different planets, the biospheres into something that's better for life to grow. So the, uh, what I call them is like the dinosaurs are like biological terraformers and it's a huge herd. It's like all the dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs didn't go extinct. They were just taken from earth and taken to another planet. But now some of the dinosaurs, they've evolved. This has been millions of years 
years, they've evolved. They're not exactly like the dinosaurs that we think we know. They're not as big. Um, they can speak English. They have, they've evolved different like traits and abilities and they want to be free. Some of them want to be free. They don't want to be, you know, slaves working for these aliens. So this small group decides to escape and they come back to Earth. They're still dinosaurs, right? They're not, they're not nice. They're not friendly. They're still like wild animals. So when they come back, it's basically uh, like shit hits the fan sort of thing. So there's just the chaos that ensues from what they did and how everybody reacts to them and all that kind of stuff. So it's the basic concept is like taking the rules of the animal kingdom and inserting them into modern day human life and like how that just throws everything into chaos. Yeah. And I wanted to say, uh, reading it, I don't know if you're familiar with, it was an old children's show back in the 1980s or uh, maybe it was the early nineties even, but it was called Dino Saucers. Yes. And it gave me a very much a feel like that, like an R rated Dino Saucers, but without the, without a lot of the human characters, because n- nobody watched that show. Yeah. Nobody watched <laughs> that did. show for the, for the humans. We watched it for the, for these oh, crazy yeah, yeah. alien dinosaurs. Yeah. No, I, that that's actually, I did watch that show. I did remember it when I came up with this idea. And it's one of the things that sort of helped me form this idea. It's because if you remember like the dinosaurs, you know, like they had weapons and they had all this alien technology and stuff. So when I'm thinking of this concept, this neotheric concept, it's like, so I'm thinking, well, what are the dinosaurs going to be? Are they going to be like that? Are they going to be like the the Teenage Mutant Turtles where each character has like their own special weapon and costume and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, no, I want this to be, the whole idea is that for the dinosaurs to be natural. Like they are what they're, they're purely natural. So whatever abilities they have, it just comes from their body or whatever, some natural evolutionary trait that they, they've come up with. But also when I was thinking of it, thinking of this, the dinosaurs cartoon, I was like, you know, these dinosaurs are neotheric. They're not your friend. They're not coming back to be, you know, they're not going to have like a kid riding on their back. If a kid tried to jump on their back, they would eat him. So it's like this concept originally, I was just going to pitch it to the different comic book publishers. So I had prepared a pitch. And one of the things that I had written about it was like Neotheric is like an 80s cartoon, but for adults. And that's sort of like exactly what you're talking about. It's like taking something like a dinosaur saucer's concept, but making it like the R-rated version. That's a great quick pitch for it. It's an R-rated 80s cartoon. Yeah. (laughs) What was the original inspiration for Neotherry? Actually, the original inspiration was the, uh, what was it? The Planet of the Apes movie, the reboot that came out, I don't know, five years ago. had John Lithgow. He was like an Alzheimer's patient and they were trying to create some kind of drug to, um, to help Alzheimer's patients. And they tested on the monkeys and Andy Serkis was doing the motion capture for Caesar. And there's a huge chunk of the movie where it's just with the apes and it's like all silent. There's, you know, there's no humans. And I really loved that part of it. And I really loved that movie and I watched it several times. But while I was watching, I was thinking, okay, so the whole idea is that not just about the movie, but just in general about evolution, you know, the, the idea that man evolved from apes. And I just thought, well, what if man evolved from another animal and didn't evolve from apes? What if he evolved from horses? This is just like silly, stupid ideas in my head. It's not like it was all serious, but I thought, okay, well then what would man look like? Oh, it'd be like a kind of like horse, like a centaur. 
And I was thinking like a reverse centaur. So I just had this stupid idea of like these, these two characters that were running around space that were like centaurs and they were kind of dickheads. They would kind of treat people like crap or something. I don't know. I just had like this really bizarre idea that just popped into my head. And I thought, okay, well, that's just stupid. But then somehow... <laughs> That kind of like transformed into instead of horses and talking about like dinosaurs and the dinosaurs having this sort of ferocious, this savage attitude, the same idea. And then it, I know it sounds like stupid, but it all kind of like, I don't know how to explain it, but like it, it all kind of just evolved from that very simple idea. And then it, you know, led to another idea and another idea and another idea. And they weren't necessarily directly related, but they kind of came out of each other. And it was just from watching that movie, it eventually became into like just this idea of savage dinosaurs coming back to modern earth and how they would interact with modern man. So I guess instead of like man having to fight apes, man having to fight dinosaurs. And so it was kind of like that. And also when I thought back about it, I thought back that this is the story that I was writing here with Neil Therick is very similar to Treasure Island. Treasure Island was like a big influence for me when I was a kid. And the basic idea of Treasure Island is you got this kid, Jim Hawkins, who's living like this very boring life. And then these pirates come into his world. And he's like, oh, this is so exciting. I want to go and travel with these pirates and do all this fanciful things and these high adventures and all this kind of stuff. And it was sort of a similar thing. These dinosaurs are kind of like pirates and they come and they live this very rugged, brutal, savage kind of lifestyle. And this, this kid that they meet, I just kind of touch up on it in this first book and these first four issues, but it's supposed to evolve to where he, you can see that he kind of, he, he lives in his imagination and he kind of gets attached to this whole idea, this romanticized idea of like, okay, these, these dinosaurs, he doesn't really understand that they're savage wild animals. He just thinks that it's like this incredible thing that's happened to change his world. And he's going to go on this crazy adventure. So in a ways it's kind of a lot like treasure Island in that way. So I want to take you back real quick. You finished writing the script for Neotheric. How did you go about finding your art team? Well, when I first, like I said, when originally it was just going to be a pitch, a proposal to send to a publisher. So I only wrote the first issue and I just went around to different websites. Again, this is back in like 2015. I was living in China. So I would just Google searched anything. I would go on to, I think the, the original artist is Dave Mims. I think I found him on a website called Freelancer. It's where artists, all different types of artists, writers, whatever, you can you can be anything and you can just write up and show your samples up there and you know, and then people can contact you directly and then you know you can you know go back and forth and see, you know, discuss how you want to work together. And uh I think that's where I found him was on that website. But I went everywhere. I went like DeviantArt. Uh, I went on Facebook. Uh, there's a website called Pencil Jack. Um, there's all kinds of different websites where, you know, artists can go on and post their stuff. So, you know, once I, I saw Dave's art, I think he was... The art that I saw was his character designs for Scrimshaw. He was the artist for Eternal Comics Scrimshaw. Um, and I think that's what the first thing that I saw. I thought, wow, that would look perfect for my book because his art is kind of like sketchy. It's very rough. Uh, and I think it, you know, it would fit the, the tone and the feel of this sort of like savage dinosaurs and all this kind of stuff. So I just contacted him. 
and we worked it out. And then we, we did the first, he did like five pages and then a couple pinups. And I sent that out to Image and Dark Horse and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, nobody bid on it. So after that, I was just like, you know what? We've already done all this work. I already have these pages in the art. We already have character designs and stuff. Let's just do it. And I just, you know, you know, we got, we settled on a contract to do the book. I think uh, it's interesting. One thing that you said, you know, when you had sent out your initial pitch when you were 11 out to Marvel Comics, yeah. you got a rejection letter from Stan Lee. Yeah. Now, I've sent out plenty of pitches in my time for comic series, and a lot of times I never receive anything back. I never hear back from them. Yeah. Uh, and I like getting a rejection letter back. When I do, I say, okay, at least I know somebody looked at this and saw it. Exactly. But uh, eventually, uh, you ended up releasing this yourself through Rainy Road Comics. Yeah. Uh, so what's the deal with Rainy Road Comics? Well, the name Rainy Road is just the, it's the road that my grandparents lived on. And I was, my dad was in the military for 20 years. So we lived everywhere. And I, I basically, I don't have a real home. You know, most people say, you know, I grew up here, there, that's, this is my home. I don't really have a home. And, but that's what I kind of consider my home. It's at my grandparents' house. So I'd always had this idea for it. If I ever had a company doing anything, comic books, movies, TVs, whatever, I would call it Rainy Road. It's not special. Spelled this way, the original street is not spelled Rainy Road, but I thought it was kind of fitting, you know, the idea of like you're on the road yourself, you're creating your, you know, you ever heard these expressions like, you know, you got to create your own path, all these kind of things. So I think it kind of lent itself to what I was, the kind of things that I do, kind of stories that I tell or whatever. So Rainy Road is just the name that I picked. I just, you know, want to have a, a brand people can identify with wherever I put it on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. People would, you know, something simple people would see right away. Instead of just my name, you know, it's easier to remember, you know, just and to have that image that people recognize. Michael? Go yeah. ahead and tell us about your writing process for Neothera. Oh, uh, well, it's basically the same as for anything I do. I start off with, you know, when, however an idea comes to me, you know, and I just write that down somewhere and just kind of let it percolate for a little while. And you just think about what it is that you're trying to say. And as it goes on, if I get more ideas, I keep, you know, I'll keep a notebook or something and keep writing down ideas and try to build up the whole story about characters, about what's supposed to happen with plot, about what it's really the story is really about keep all that information and then once i feel like i have like a good story idea from beginning to end then what i'll do is you know just write it out usually since i've written a lot of um, screenplays you know none that's ever been produced or ever will but i've written a lot of screenplays so you know you have the three-act structure about how how all that goes so i tend to still write that way even though i'm writing in a comic book I still write in that sort of three-act structure and so I'll write, write it out like that. Then when I want to go to comic book format and I'm, I know that I'm going to write this as a comic book, what I do is I'll take like a spreadsheet and I'll write down however many panels. Usually most comics have like about, you know, one to six panels per page. So I'll put like page one and I'll put three, six lines. So I say, okay, panel one, two, three, four, five, six. I know where I want to start. Where does the page start? What image or whatever the idea is, how it starts. And then I know where do I want to get by the end of that page for the whole page turn because I remember you were talking uh, your last I think your last podcast the person you were talking to was talking about that whole idea of the 
page turn. And the page turn is so important to the comic book format, comic book medium, that to me, I want every page to be like a cliffhanger. There needs to be something that'll really entice people to turn that page. So that's how, that's why I plan it this specific way. Like I know from panel one, where it starts and a pa- and the last panel, whether, you know, if it's four panels or six panels, wherever, where do I want to get to by the end of that page? So then figuring out what happens in between there, it's pretty easy. So I break it down as much as I can. So basically I'm going from uh, the general to the very specific. So I figure out the very general idea, like from the beginning of the book, where does the end of the book? And then from the beginning of the page to the end of the page. And I use a spreadsheet to just write it all down. And once I have that format like that, it's much easier for me. And I don't really experience like writer's block or anything like that because I kind of, it's almost like an automatic process, you know, where I could just jot things down. And then obviously if I come up with other ideas and things, you can modify them as you go. But I think this helps me to just get everything down and to really write it specifically for a comic book for those, those beats that you need for the page turn. So you know exactly, you know, what's going to happen from here to here to get to the next moment and really entice people to keep reading. Yeah, that seems like an interesting merge of writing just with a pen and a paper and also using the spreadsheet, using technology to help that along. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I still, you know, sometimes I write like if I'm at work and um, I'm a mechanic. So, you know, I'm just d- doing stuff, working, and then I might have an idea that just pops into my head while I'm working. And so I have a, a notepad up on my toolbox and I'll just go there and write down the notes. And I, I could, by the end of the day, I could have a whole page full of notes that I've written. And then so when I come back and whenever I have time to actually sit down and write it, like I said, I'll go to that spreadsheet and I'll just start breaking it down exactly where where all of these beats should be. And then, you know, I just use whatever I can to try to make it easier or make it flow as easy as possible. So that, like I said, I don't want to get caught in this writer's block thing where you don't know what's going to happen because I've already kind of figured that out. Yeah, I know I've spoken with a couple different people. Actually, the interview I just edited yesterday, uh, one of the things we spoke about was one of the toughest parts about writing is just getting started. I find once I start writing, I can keep writing, but it's just getting that first sentence down. Yeah. It's one of the things I have problems I have is just because I've got so much going on. It's hard to find moments where you can just be quiet and just let the ideas sort of like come out of you. I, I need to have like that quiet. If I don't have that quiet, I've got little kids and you know, all this other stuff and they're all running around screaming and doing all the things they like to do. It's kind of hard to, you know, find the moments where you can sort of like slip into your own world and let all these ideas like come out. I know I feel exactly the same way. Um, I can't have anyone talking to me. I play music, but I'll play instrumental music. I can't have yes. like uh, music with lyrics in the background because yes. then I get thinking about the lyrics and it throws me off my game. But it, a lot of times when I'm writing like a superhero scene, I'll have some superhero music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do the same thing. The only time that I listen to music that has lyrics in it is if it's something that's almost like very specifically matches what I'm trying to write. Like there's uh, Linkin Park had an album, 10,000 Sons, a couple of years ago, and I was writing a script and it's like almost every song in that matched like the feeling and the, the tone of what I was writing, but I couldn't write it while I was writing. I would just listen to it. You 
you know, and think about it, you know, visualize all the scenes and things that would happen in the scene. And sometimes it would help, you know, bring out what it was I wanted to say just by listening to that song because it matched so perfectly with the ideas. But then when I would actually go down and write, it's the same thing as you. I would have to just be, if I listen to music, it's got to be instrumental. And if I have any kind of talking, then it's very distracting. Well, like we said at the start of this podcast, Neotheric is available now on Comixology, but you're actually a pretty accomplished writer. Uh, You have a lot more projects that are up there, a lot more books that are up on Comixology. Tell us about some of your other projects. Well, one of the other things, if people are into horror, I have a book there that's called 6-8. It was originally uh, meant to just be a one-shot and... As of right now, it still is a one shot, but I've kind of developed it into a bigger story if I ever get the chance to tell it. But that was in 2018. How do you know the artist for Walking Dead, Charlie Adler? He picked that comic as the horror comic of the year for 2018 for the, there's a website called Comic Central and they do this every year where they kind of pick out the different genres and they'll, they'll ask industry professionals to come in and judge. They'll ask industry professionals to come in and judge what they think is like, what's the best superhero series? What's the best horror? What's the best, you know, overall comic, all that kind of stuff. And in 2018, he picked 6-8 as the best uh, horror comic. So if people are into horror, I've got that there too. I have a couple of uh, anthologies that I did a bunch of short stories. It was more like a writing exercise. I, I really wanted to um, improve my writing. And I had heard from people like Alan Moore and Mark Millar and all these guys over in Europe, they had started writing for 2000 AD, these future shocks stories where they're like four page sci-fi stories. And so I, I wanted to give that a shot. And I really enjoyed writing short stories because it's a real challenge to figure out how to write a compelling story in such a short amount of space. So I wrote like 10 different short stories and I put them up on this. It's called Ashcan Anthology. There's a one and a number two. And those are also available up there. It's and uh, my my plan is one day to print those out in one collected book because um I got they're all colored now they're all it's all full colored now and I want to put them together in, in a book and put that out if I ever get the chance so I have that there I have been actually paid to write a screenplay by somebody so I can I can say. I'm a professional writer without feeling, you know, embarrassed. <laughs> but uh, I have written a bunch of different things. And, you know, like I said, is when I was younger, I tried comics for a long time, but it just didn't work out for a while. So I went over into film and video. And then I just tried to get back into comics because trying to work in films is, is it's such a like a committee kind of thing where, you know, they'll take your screenplay and they'll send it to like a thousand different people and everybody's got their opinion of it. And then they try to rework everything to fit everybody's opinion. So in comics, it's basically just you. You get to decide what the story is. You get to decide how the characters are and what happens in the story and what it's all about. And that's really why I like comics. It's really just up to you and whatever small group that you work with, the artist, the colorist, whatever it is, but it's a much tighter group of people. And now that Neotheric Volume 1 is out, are you planning on doing a Volume 2 or do you have any other projects? lined up in the pipeline? Well, I definitely want to continue this story. 
um, these, this collected graphic novel is the first four issues of what I hope would be maybe 50 or 60 issues. I have the first 12 issues mapped out in detail. So I would really like to be able to continue this series, but obviously it only, it depends on if enough people will support it because I can't keep spending money on something that doesn't make anything in return. And this project alone, I've probably spent close to like $10,000 for all of the art, the printing of it, and everything that I've done so far. Wow. And that was totally self-funded? Yes. Wow. This is all over, you know, over a span of like five years or six years now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I tried to run an Indiegogo back in December and January to fund the printing of the book, but I only got seven backers. So it was pretty embarrassing. I don't really know like what else I could do. I mean, I, I have very little time to promote and do stuff like this because, you know, I have a full-time job of family and all these other kind of things. And, you know, the time that I spend, I try to spend it on actually making books, you know, writing and doing that. So I just, you know, I, I try to promote on Twitter, on Facebook, on, you know, Instagram, different things, but not enough people found out about the book because every once in a while, you know, I'd get somebody who would say, you know, they would discover the book or they would discover the, the crowdfunding campaign. They would say, wow, this book looks really interesting. Is you know, it's really good. Or I would send it to people and they would read it and they would give me positive feedback. But I think it was just a matter of I couldn't get it out to enough people. I couldn't get it in front of enough eyes for people to back it. So I don't know if I, if I can't make something back, like I said, I can't keep dumping money into it. into something that's not going to make anything in return, but I do, it, it is planned for like a, a full story. There is a beginning, there is an end that I already know how it's going to end. I know like what's going to happen in the story. There's a very detailed plan about what the story is really about and and it's not just about, hey, here's some dinosaurs come back and they're going to blow up stuff. There's more to it than that. So I would really like to be able to continue with it. I do have other ideas. I'm developing another project right now, doing character designs for another project, but we'll just have to see how it goes. And this is something I want to touch on. Uh, this isn't scripted, uh, but this is something that I wanted to just point out because a lot of times a writer and creator, and I say writer and creator, even though it can be an artist creator, uh, but most of the time the creator is the writer. They're putting up the financial burden, but also hopefully reaping the financial success when it comes in. But for independent books, books that are done, it is really a labor of blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's something I really believe in this story. Uh, again, it's not just about, you know, dinosaurs and blowing up stuff. There's there's a whole point to this story about things like fatherhood and family and freedom, about personal freedom. The whole idea of the dinosaurs being slaves and coming back to Earth, that's what it's about. It's about, you know, your personal freedom and things like that, that I want to touch them. I don't want those, those kind of things to be like on the surface, you know, right in your face, shoving it down your throat. Those are the kind of things that are supposed to be just under the surface in the background so that people can enjoy it. If they just want to enjoy it as a this crazy over the top action adventure, then you can do that because it, it kind of exists on different levels. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely, I believe in this. I've spent a lot of money on it, a lot of time. 
And it's not like I'm independently wealthy or anything. It's just money that instead of going out and going out to bars and clubs every week or whatever, or buying $500 tennis shoes or, you know, buying $2,000 rims, I'm spending that money trying to make a book. So, I mean, I believe in it and I um, sincerely, so I hope that people at least give it a chance. I know it's not for everyone, but you know, I, I printed out a hundred copies, you know, foot the bill for that myself just to see if, you know, if enough people would get into it. And if enough people do, then I'm ready to go. The artist, the, the second artist that I got, Andre, Portia, he's really into it. Uh, he was a great guy to work with. He was really collaborative, brought a lot of cool ideas, and I really like his art style. Um, he's really, he would be really excited to keep doing this too. So if that opportunity comes, I mean, we could just go ahead and do it. And another quick thing I wanted to touch on that you brought up you had run an Indiegogo campaign and it didn't raise as much funds or as many backers as you would have liked. And uh, you said it was an embarrassment. Yeah. But at the end of the day, did, did you learn a lesson from running that campaign? I don't know. I really don't know. It's the, you guess you just got to get out there more. You got to find, I mean, I don't know. This is like, this is the big problem for me. This is the major issue. How do I find customers? How do I find people that are really interested in buying books? Not just people, because a lot of the people that you see on YouTube and Twitter and stuff, they're other creators who are selling their own book. And how do I get to the people that will buy the books? Because originally this whole thing, when I, when I first started, when I, like I said, I was living back in China, I didn't even know about Indiegogo and Kickstarter. My whole idea was that first I would pitch it to publishers. If that doesn't work, eventually I'll just, you know, I'll do the series, make it myself, pay for it myself, put it on the digital platforms, try to build some kind of an audience digitally, at least enough so that, okay, if I pay for printing a small amount myself, then I can go to conventions and try to sell it that way. Because that's where, you know, you go to a comic book convention, you would hope there's going to be people that are interested in buying comic books. The, that's, that's the direct way to get to those people. But, you know, now we don't, we can't have conventions anymore and all that kind of stuff. So now, now I'm stuck with how do I get to these people purely on the internet or purely through these social media platforms? And the only thing I can think of is things like this, like your podcast. As far as I know, that's really like the only avenue is you got to try to find, because like for an example is say, you know, everybody's now saying like, okay, you got to have your own YouTube channel. If you want to sell to people, you got to build your own, so you got to go on YouTube, got to build your own YouTube channel. Okay. Does that every stand-up comedian have to have their own TV, late night TV show? You know, they went to Johnny Carson. There was like one, pro, one place where everybody kind of went to is Johnny Carson, David Letterman, or they went to the comedy clubs. They didn't have to have their own thing. They'll own, make their own comedy club. Every single, you know, comedian have their own comedy club, you know? It doesn't make no sense. Is if I'm I'm just making the content, not trying to like build a whole TV show and empire and all this kind of stuff myself. You know what I'm saying? So to me, there's like this weird disconnect, and I don't know how to get into that. I understand what you're saying. Um, one thing I wanted to just say was, you know, having a failed crowdfunding campaign. I well, my first campaign that I crowdfunded failed. It wasn't so much embarrassing as just having the mindset of, you know, I just don't have the fan base for it yet. Yeah. Yeah, no, but that's the problems now. How how are you going to build the fan base? And that's uh, I don't know. I, I rack my brain over that all the time. <laughs> yeah. This is the uh, this is the conundrum. How do we reach the people? 
listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colomb. For Neotheric, what has been the biggest challenges or mistakes that you've made? Well, the biggest challenge was just putting the whole thing together. It was just me and an artist. One artist in the beginning for like the first two issues and then another artist to finish off the last two issues. So for me, the challenge was like just figuring out how to make a comic book. All the little details and things you got to know, like like I was saying before about even just lettering. And, you know, I had to design the book. I had to learn how to use programs. The um, Manga Studio is the the software that I use. Um, But also in the beginning, I was also using like Photoshop, Illustrator. Now I'm using Inkscape to do things. I mean, it's like you got to teach yourself everything, how to do everything. So there's a huge learning curve as far as just actually making the book is for that. As far as like creatively, like one of the things that I kind of, if I had to do it all over again, I think just for creatively, as far as the story goes, I think I made a mistake of like trying to to make it for the story in the first issue being too kind of like mysterious, like setting up the story and having like a, this big twist sort of at the end when maybe it could have been better to just get right into the action in the very first issue and, you know, and just go from there. I think so. If I had to do it all over again, I might change it in that way. But I, I do say in defense of what I, as far as the storytelling goes, there are a lot of things in the first issue where I'm setting up little plot lines, little plot threads that will pay off much later in the series. The problem is you may never even get to that. You're doing everything yourself. When you're a writer creator, you're doing everything yourself. And the creation is almost a full-time job. But then on top of that, you have the marketing and you have the social media and you have the selling of the book. And that's almost, you know, three other jobs on top of just creating stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really daunting. There's a lot of stuff. And that's kind of like, I didn't really appreciate that when I first started coming up with this or, or thought of the idea of, okay, I'm going to make my own comic book. It's like, okay, well, you making it is one thing. Getting it to people, having people buy it is a whole nother issue. It's a whole nother set of skills. It's a whole nother concern that you have to get into and try to figure out. If you could go back in your career with the knowledge that you have today, what would you change? Wow, that's a good question because I don't think I've ever thought of that. I have to admit, like when I first started trying to write comics and I was pitching to people like in my early 20s and then I go back now and I look what I wrote then, I say, oh my God, this stuff is horrible. (laughs) So I understand why every, you know, why they were always rejected. You know, it makes sense now when I look back at it. At the time, you know, it was really painful. It was like, oh, these oh, these people are all assholes. They don't know what they're talking about. This is this is the greatest thing ever. But now when I look back and I say, man, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to really write a story, how to structure a story, how to set things up and pay them off, all this kind of things that, you know, really a decent writer should know how to do. But, you know, I honestly, I, I studied I read like every book there was on how to write. And, you know, this is when I was a preteen. I had subscriptions to Writer's Digest and all that kind of stuff. I read all kinds of books about writing. So I thought that I knew how to write, but but now I can see that I didn't. But I think if I had to go back, what I would probably would have changed, what I would have told myself is not to give up. It's because I gave up for a really long time. I was just... I think when I was maybe like 24, after I had, you know, written so much stuff and spent all this energy on it and nothing was going anywhere, I just got really, really frustrated. And I was like, forget it. I just completely stopped. I stopped 
I mean, I pretty much stopped everything, like watching movies, reading comic books, everything. I just stopped because it was kind of like, I guess I just say there's no other word for it. It's like, it's painful. You know, you're just putting all this kind of effort into something and nothing is working and you're being completely ignored. And that's the thing that hurts the most. You know, it's not like just get re- getting a rejection letter. It's that, like you're saying before, it's actually pretty nice. I mean, somebody read your stuff and took the time to, you know, respond and acknowledge that you did this work. What hurts the most is just being completely ignored. It's like you don't even exist everything you did nothing nothing matters so but if i would go back and tell myself i would just say just keep keep at it man you just got to keep at it and keep working it doesn't matter if other people acknowledge you or not if you really like doing this and this is really something you feel that you need to do just keep doing it I think social media amplifies that a little bit. Uh, Not social media itself, but the algorithm specifically that social media uses to get other people to see it. Because a lot of times I'll send out Facebook posts, I'll send out Twitters, I'll send out Instagrams, and I don't see, nobody likes it. It feels almost a lot like we're shouting into the void. We keep getting the advice, keep shouting into the void. Even with my email newsletter that I send out, I can see people read it, but I never really get any replies to it. But when I go to a convention and I'll get somebody who comes up to the table and says, man, I just want to thank you for sending out the email newsletters. I don't know. It's an odd feeling. Yeah. This whole social media thing is really strange. I don't know. I mean, I don't honestly even know what to make of it most of the time. But it's, it's a it's a strange phenomenon. And like I was telling you before the podcast, if it was not for my business, I wouldn't even be on there. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I mean, I would have no reason whatsoever to be on Twitter if it wasn't for, you know, just trying to get the word out about different projects working on. Because as far as I know, that's really like the only thing is, um, you know, Facebook. I haven't really gotten anything at all out of Facebook ever. And I never really liked Facebook to begin with. I've tried Instagram posting stuff up there, but it's, you know, it's like minimal kind of success with it. I think the key is just, you've got to be like there every day, constantly all the time, putting stuff out, you know, just shotgunning stuff. And that's a problem for me is because, you know, I don't just don't, I literally don't have the time to be sitting at the computer or, you know, on my phone or whatever, just constantly blasting stuff out, hoping that someone will see things. And you're already working a full-time job. On top of that, you're doing the full-time job of the creation. Have you ever thought about uh, delegating out to someone to, you know, be your social media manager? And sometimes I get like, I'll put, you know, stuff out on Twitter and then someone will send me a response and it's like something from some sort of promotional group or something. They'll say like, oh, if you, you know, if you get with us, we'll send your tweets out to 50 million people. And it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a scam or whatever it is, but I mean, what difference does it make if it goes out to 50 million people? The key is it goes out to the right people, people that are actually going to interested in comics and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't matter if it goes out to 50 million Kardashian followers. Who cares? They don't, they don't care about comic books and stuff. So, I mean, to me, it's just like it would be a waste of time. Yeah, it's better to have a hundred really rabid fans who want and yearn and need your stuff than it is to have a thousand disinterested people who say, oh, that's, that's all right. That's cool. Yeah. It's just swipe left, swipe left or whatever you do. All right. Well, Michael, I want you to close your eyes for me real quick. Think about all the pitches you've made, all the books that you've published. What's been your best moment as a comic creator so far? So far, I would say it's just having the actual book. 
in my hands. Cause this is like the big deal is that when I was doing like short films and things like that, you know, you have an idea in your head and that's all it is. It's just an idea and it's, it only belongs to you. I mean, it lives in you and nobody else. It's not until it's, it takes the actual physical form and it's shown to other people and it's a, a way that it can speak to other people. This sort of transformation from this vague idea that you had in your head at one time. Now it's, it's almost like a living sentient being on its own. To me, that's really fascinating because I've had times where like we, we made a short film and we were in a theater and there was like a thousand people in the theater and they, sh they showed the film and everybody in the audience was laughing at the right time. They would gasp at the right time, exactly like how you planned it. And that feeling was just incredible. It was like a drug. It was, oh my God, people actually laughed at that joke. <laughs> This just the whole thing of like having a completed project, you know, if, as far as a comic that comes down to, well, to me anyway, obviously you got digital and stuff, but it's a whole different thing when you actually have the book in your hand. It's like a huge moment. It's when your baby is born. It's alive. It's like, oh my God, this is real. It's just an incredible feeling that you've created something and now it can exist beyond you. That maybe this book will sit in a library and 50 years from now, somebody will pick it up and be like, oh, hey, yeah, this sucks. No, <laughs> they like, to me, that's like the big thing is just having the actual book itself done and in your hands, it's an accomplishment. Yeah, nothing beats opening the first box and picking out that first book. And I still, to this day, when I get that first shipment in, I'll open up that first box, take the first book out, and it's going up on the wall somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you know people start a business and they keep their first dollar bill that they made and they frame it up on the wall. It's like the same kind of thing. You know, like I actually did it. You yeah. know? Starting out, what was the best advice that you received? As far as just writing uh, I think the best advice I've ever come across is that you just got to treat it like it's a job. You got to, you know, every day sit down and write, no matter if, if you're able to write the greatest thing or the worst thing or how much you write, you just got to treat it like it's a job. If this is something you really want to do, you got to do it. This is a lot of people, they say like, you know, oh, I'm a writer. And they say, oh, well, what did you write? No, I haven't written anything yet. Well, then you're not a writer. You know, you got to get down, get down and dirty and actually write. So I think this is a big thing for me is kind of when I was younger and just, you know, you have like all these ideas for something, but it doesn't matter until you actually start writing them. And so you get into this groove or this mindset that, okay, I got to make the time, whatever it is. It could be early in the morning, late at night, whenever, every day they start writing. And I think it's true of anything. If you're an artist, you know, a penciler or a letter or whatever, just do it every single day. And you know, you build up your skill set, you build up your you know familiarity with how to do it. And you know, you, you put in those 10,000 hours you need till you become good at it. I think that's the best thing I heard. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote. I need to look up who it was who said it, but it, it went basically a lot of people want to be a famous author, yeah. but not many people want to write. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that goes for a lot of things now. Everyone wants to be something, but they don't want to put in the work to actually do it. Michael, thank you so much for coming on with me. Your book, Neotheric, as well as other books. If anyone out there likes the ideas for this, Neotheric, 6-8, your anthology books, you can find them right now on Comixology. 
Where else can we find you on the web? Uh, I think the best place if people want to contact me, like if you want to buy the book itself, uh, you just DM me on Twitter. It's just at Rainy Road Comics. The book is also on Amazon. If you just want to buy it off of Amazon, you can get it there. One thing that uh, I need to note though, is if you search for the book on Amazon and you type in Neil Ferrick, it's going to bump it to a different word that is neoteric. There's some kind of uh, product or something. I think it's makeup. It's called neoteric. So if you search for it, it, it'll probably say, did you mean neoteric? It's like, no. So you'll have to like click down on it and where it actually says neoteric and then it should pop up. Um, you could also just search for Rainy Road Comics and that should pop up all of them. And they're also on Kindle. If you have a Kindle device, you can search for it there. So you heard him. Don't let autocorrect cock block you. We'll put a link in the description and all the uh, show notes and everything so people can see. Do you have any other social medias, Facebook, Instagram? I do have Instagram. Sometimes I post on there. Um, that's also just at Rainy Road Comics. I do have Facebook, but I don't really use it that much, honestly. Uh, the main thing is just Twitter. Uh, I think it's just the easiest way. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Under the Mask well, thank you very much, Bill. I really Bill appreciate Cologne. this Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off. 